This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, George Saunders returns to Little Atoms to talk about his latest book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. George Saunders is the author of 11 books, including Lincoln in the Bardo, which won the 2017 Man Booker Prize. The audiobook for Lincoln in the Bardo, which featured a cast of 166 actors, won the 2018 Audio Award for Best Audiobook. The story collection, 10th of December, was a finalist for the National Book Award and won the inaugural Folio Prize in 2013. Saunders has received the MacArthur and Guggenheim Fellowships and the Penn Malamud Prize for Excellence in the Short Story, and he has taught in the Creative Writing Programme at Syracuse University since 1997. And out of teaching at Syracuse comes George's latest book, which is A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, in which four dead Russians give us a masterclass in writing and lie. George, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me, Neil. First of all, tell us what the idea is behind this book. Well, as you said, I've been teaching this class uh, at Syracuse for 20 years to, uh, to these you know, the great writers, great young writers would get there. So the idea of the class is that we're basically reading um, works of literature kind of with a, you know, craft perspective. So we're not trying to be necessarily academic or, or too analytical, but we're trying to steal stuff, you know, and trying to uh, see how the masters did it. So this class at Syracuse would have been, uh, you know, full semester, probably covered 36 or 40 stories. And so what I did with the book, which is pick out the seven stories, I think, sort of taught the best over the years and so in the book you get the text of the original Russian story uh, in English of course and then my sort of essay slash teaching notes uh, associated with that story so it's kind of a romp through the through the world of the short story I guess and so let's talk about why the Russian short story what is it about the Russians that appeal to you particularly yeah you know I was kind of a working class person so I wasn't really that well read and I, I went to engineering school uh, instead of English school so after I wrote my first book I had a chance to teach at Syracuse and they asked you to put together a class like this one I'm describing and I just sort of thought you know the, the stories that have really made me fall in love with the short story and the stories that have continued to speak to me urgently at every stage of life they tend to be these Russian ones you know 19th century Russians so since I was a, a novice teacher, I thought I'd better just, you know, teach what I love. That I can I can talk about with some authenticity. And so I started doing that. And then over the years, the stories kept speaking to me. And I think partly it's because they're they're kind of, uh, in some ways, you know, the first order stories. They're kind of about life. You know, how should we behave? How should we um, deal with the the problems that arise? And they do that fairly directly, as if that is art's aim. You know, in other words, art is there to sort of guide us in a gentle way through the, this difficult life of ours. So they've always spoken to me that way. And in my own work, I tend to, you know, it, it's pretty much a moral machine. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get a problem to arise that we all might have faced and then dispense with it in some way, hopefully not too soon. And the Russians seem to be operating on that same wavelength, I guess. What we're going to do is we'll go through... A selection of the stories, hopefully about four or five of them. You said there's seven stories you talk about. And we're going to look at, I guess, as we go, some rules, guidelines for you know writing a good short story. But we should say also at the outset that this book is not 
how to write a short story, is it? No, because nobody knows really. And if you know the day that you think you do, that's the day you're gonna stink up the place. You know, it, 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 I think part of the part of what I learned from from writing this book was that well, first of all, each story has its own rules of course, and the writer is kind of in a you know a struggle to find out what that story's rules are and then submit to them. And that's you know it can only be done on a case by case basis. So with this book, I kind of I, my feeling was if you do this kind of close analysis. It's not necessarily clear how that's going to benefit you as a writer. I don't think it's one-to-one. You know, you don't say, oh, I'm going to use technique 6A from this Chekhov story. I think more that it's just kind of the close analysis has the effect of raising the bar internally for yourself. In other words, you, you see these high-level effects that these writers are getting, and your opinion of the short story form elevates, and therefore you approach it with a little more respect and, and a little more reverence. Yeah, it's not, it's not meant to be a how-to book at all. It's kind of a... Uh, it, it goes a great length to avoid that. The first story uh, in the cart by Chekhov, um, you do something slightly different here to the other six in that you demonstrate more directly how you would teach this story in the class by taking a page of the story. Each of the stories, you, you present the story and then there's an essay by yourself about that story. In this one, you take a page of the story at a time and interrupt and talk about the story and then do the next page and then interrupt again. So I want to, bearing that in mind, talk about this first story in terms of how you would teach this story to a class in that method. Right. It, well, often what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll choose a shorter story, and there's two by Hemingway that really work well, because this is, <laughs> the reader will experience it's annoying. You know, you start reading the story and getting into it, and then I say, hi, let me just talk about it. But it's a great way to remind ourselves something, about something very important, which is that any work of art, but let's just say a story, it's a linear temporal phenomenon. You know, you, you're, I start off, I say such and such, I introduce a sentence. At that point, you're either with me or you're against me, you know, or, or you're with me in a certain flavor. The next sentence, then, it can only respond to the first one, and then we're off to the races. So when we're, especially I think when we're, we're trying to be working artists, it's useful, I think, to kind of come away from the big general thematic buzz-killing aphorisms, you know, what we must do or shouldn't do or care if I'm wrong. And just ask yourself this simple question. If I was reading the story for the first time and I hit this line, would I be inclined to keep going? And if I did, what would I have sort of in my basket at that point? For me, that's been a real comfort to just say, the only way to understand work of art is step by step like this. So so this exercise kind of is a, an attempt to demonstrate that. So in class, what we'll do is we'll read the first page, I stop everybody, and I say, okay, do you like it? So why, what do you, uh, you know, before you started, or your mind was blank, where is it now? What do you think might happen? What are you afraid will happen? And so it's kind of a, again, a very annoying way to remind ourselves of the rules of engagement of work of art that proceeds only in time, you know, going forward in time. What perhaps, let's perhaps talk about, you just mentioned, you know, the idea of what keeps you reading a story. So in terms of, in, in terms of this particular example, what are the steps that Chekhov makes that might keep us reading right. the story is what you talk about in this book but we could also look at that in the other way so what sort of thing would make a reader lose interest and stop wanting to carry on with a story right, right. well well here's the thing it's interesting if i say you know to you neil i walked into the yard today and you won't believe what i saw now 
even right there, your interest is a little peaked. So I tell my students, that's a great tool we have to work with is that people are pretty natural story receivers and curiosity is rampant in the human mind. So one way that you can get that curiosity started is to just be specific. And especially, as I found out in this book, specific and physical. So in this story, Chekhov spends about a page describing this young woman in her state of mind in this cart. And basically, she's kind of lonely and sad. And it's amazing that after just, you know, 30 lines of this, of this specificity, it's not philosophical, it's not high-toned, just a girl, suddenly she you know, she comes into being for us and we are interested in what happens to her. It's not it's not rocket science. It's kind of just, you know, once I start filling your mind with specifics about another human being, somehow neurologically you get engaged. Now, what can subvert that process? I think it's the writer having too uh, apparent of an agenda or an intention. So in other words, if I'm having the aim of manipulating you, making you feel a certain thing or demonstrating some of my philosophy. On the other end of that process, you're going to feel that. And you're, feel, you're feeling a little bit condescended to and a little jerked around. And you, as you would in real life, you pull back. So I think that's the biggest, the biggest problem is that we, we want to control the story and the reader. And that's antithetical to what the process is. So in this story, Chekhov kind of just very quietly creates a woman in the first page with an issue, and the issue is she's lonely. And then, as we do, we understand that that now becomes the topic of the story, this loneliness that she feels has got to be assuaged, and even after the first page we're in, at least I am. I want to move us on to the next story, which is The Singers by Turgenev, which I actually think was my favourite of all of the seven. I've not read any of these seven stories before, before, before I, oh, nice, I read them nice. for, for this interview, and I think this one was my favourite. <laughs> A couple of the lessons we learn in the chapter about In the Cart is that a story should probably change a character in a way that seems like a progression. So something happens to them that changes them for the rest of their lives. And also, everything that's noted in the story, everything that's mentioned in the story, all the details should have some sort of point that's relative to this ongoing narrative and so then when we come to the singers by Turgenev the exact opposite happens this is a story that (laughs) seems to be absolutely stuffed full of unnecessary detail so tell us why it isn't well right so this story I usually teach it near the beginning of the semester because I tend to go chronologically and I love this story but as you say it's really overstuffed and it's really old-fashioned so it's an interesting moment to come to class having taught this or having assigned it. And you say, what do you think? And there's kind of an, you know, usually a bit of an awkward pause because they don't want to critique a story or criticize a story that I've assigned. But it becomes then a chance to ask the question, what do we expect the story to do? And as you said perfectly, we expect it to be efficient. Uh, we expect everything in it to be to purpose. Uh, we expect a meaningful change over the course of it. Those are kind of like, they're not rules, but they're, in the physics sense, there are laws. We kind of understand that if I say, hey, I've got a story to tell you, it's eight pages long, the implicit assumption is that it's going to be efficient and that you know something meaningful is going to happen during it. Otherwise, I shouldn't bother you. So those are the sort of baseline laws of the form. This story is a really good way of, of one, seeing how far a writer can push it. Because what I say in the essay is, even though it is long-winded and it's digressive, and it seems to be somehow malformed in a way, it still always moves me when I read it, partly because it's demonstrating the idea that a work of art 
though it should be perfect, never is. And therefore, part of the way our story moves us is that we see the writer trying, you know, trying to make it perfect and being somewhat held back by his own actual personality, you know. So it, for me, I introduced this to my students just to say, I'm going to talk all year as if, you know, efficiency is the, the watchword. And But remember that it's really hard to write a story and we can make mistakes and we can write flabby stories and we can, you know, we have to be engaged in the process of using our actual self to make a work of art which means it's going to be flawed. So, you know, a sort of modicum of self-generosity is important for us to do our, our whole work. One of the ways in which this this story seems to be overstuffed with a lot of detail is that the narrator of this story, we can imagine, is a, a version of Turgenev himself who is basically doing something along the lines of repertage more than storytelling he's he he is almost reporting for us the lives of the of the people in this story so to what extent does i guess the the purpose of why the author is writing a story change how we react to it i think in this case we it's funny we feel at least when i read it uh there's something kind of musty about this idea that we would need to know what a country pub looked like. I mean, in those days, I think maybe, you know, the uh, intelligentsia in Moscow didn't get out much or whatever, but there's something about the, um, here's the thing, okay, if a story has an excess in it, which this one has many, many, one thing we do at the end is we just scan to see, was that excess just sort of a screw-up, an accident, or can we understand it as being part of the artistic purpose of the story? In this one, I would make the case that the narrator's outsider status is kind of important because he comes to town with this vaguely condescending idea of, of observing the locals, you know, um, kind of like going into a biker bar or something like that. And then he's he witnesses a singing contest that really moves him, and it causes him to kind of flare up as an individual person. You, you know, he, he actually is there for a moment and is moved. That move actually reinforces the whole theme of the story. You know, the story is about how art can, even somewhat sloppy art, can transform us. And we actually see that happening to the narrator. So I think you could make the case that making him an aristocrat on a hunting trip who happens to condescendingly wander into this bar is actually part of the story's genius. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to George Saunders. We're talking about his latest book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, in which four dead Russians give us a masterclass in writing and life. And George, I want to move us on to next, the story Master and Man by Tolstoy. And you talk later in the book, after the chapter on this book, about how Tolstoy actually had another go at an earlier go at this story telling about an incident that really happened to him in a a story called the snowstorm so tell us why master and man is the greater version of this story right well what i do in the book is i I do it's called a teacherly chicken out which is just say read it and you decide you know because there's they're written something like 30 years apart or something so Tolstoy had just learned so much in the meantime. I mean, in a nutshell, it's that master and man is just a more highly organized system. He's Everything is in there to purpose. It's not just because it happened to him. In fact, it didn't happen to him the way it's described. So it's, it's, it's more shaped. It's more purposeful. It's faster. It actually follows that classic sort of rising action, climax shape much more beautifully than than the original. But one of the, you know one of the things I try to get at in the book is that articulating things like this uh, only takes us so far in the realm of art. The real sort of value for a, a, a student would be to read the snowstorm and then read Master and Man, and then just sit there a bit. You know, the, the idea is that the the true lesson has already percolated down just in juxtaposition of those two things. Uh, and of course, in in class and in interviews, we we're inclined to articulate, and that's wonderful. But so much of what we, I think, what artists actually do is sort of, you know, it's intuitive, it's hard to describe, or impossible. And the difference between a really good artist and a mediocre one is really just the quality of those, you know, intuitive decisions. And I think it's important as an educator, to, especially of talented young writers, to get that out front and say, you know, we've got a room full of kids here. This one over here has read everything in the world and can explain everything and has all the theory down. This one here is quiet. She came to us from rural Kansas where her dad owned a car wash, and she can't explain anything. But, man, her story's full of life. You know, that possibility has to be allowed within this sort of MFA format. One of the lessons you talk about in this chapter in terms of, you know, what makes a great writer, and we're talking here about how, you know, Tolstoy wrote this first version of this story 30 years before, but I'm I'm, I'm talking here more about, you know, literally sitting down and writing a new story. Um, the importance of revision. Well, this is, this is a place where I had to be careful because my, my process is really revision heavy. Basically, because for whatever complicated psychological reason, my early drafts are not, uh, they, they tend to be a little hyperbolic and not very honest and so on. So for me, I just have to go through hundreds of drafts to get it to where it's serviceable. Not every writer has that issue, but in the book, I make the case that basically every work of art, has, it's got some combination of intuition, you know, that moment where you just say A is better than B, I'll choose A. And also iteration, where you allow yourself to go back to it and do that first thing over and over again, over many drafts. So in a sense, what's happening is you're you're allowing, I guess you'd say, all of the selves that you are potentially to the table. So one day you're the full, full overflow and you write a big, you know, poetic draft of a paragraph. The next day you're grouchy and constipated and you come back and you cut it way down. The third day you are... Um, in some other state of mind, you know, over the course of many days of work, you 
all the cells in you kind of reach an agreement. And the mysterious thing is that agreed upon version that's been revised many times tends to be smarter than the actual writer and more compassionate and so on. So I think for me, it's it's a matter of just making sure that all the beauty and truth that I could have gotten in there, I get in there. And I, I again, I don't think everybody has to revise as much as I do, but but it's, a, it's actually a wonderful opportunity and it's the best kind of antidote to a writer's block that there is. If a, if a person knows how to revise, they never have to have a blank page because you just write whatever in the full confidence that you can come back and, and improve. And that actually is, in my experience, about 90% of writing anyway is improving what you've already done and trying to find the, trying to make the corner a little sharper, I guess. And the other lesson that comes out of the discussion of master and man is is the idea of the importance of escalation, of, of, of a story having to consistently raise the stakes for its characters to keep us interested. Tell us about the importance of escalation. Well, I think that's, you know, it's kind of one of the tacit assumptions of, of narrative. You know, if, if, if I say, so I'm sitting here at my desk in upstate New York, you say, okay, fine, I, I accept that. Now, if I just, you know, continue to describe my surroundings, you'll take some of that. And you're, but even if I'm describing the room, you're kind of waiting for something in that description to promise some action, you know. But if, in fact, I just keep just, you know, listing all the things that are in this room and my iPad and my lamp and your spirit goes restless, you know. Now, part of that is because you're in, you know, you're in the story mode. And so you're waiting for, as we say, the action to rise. And somehow that, to get the action to rise in the story, in other words, to make it seem meaningful and increasingly, increasingly meaningful, that's the hardest thing to do. In a sense, I guess, because it's the hardest thing to do, all of us people who've been reading and hearing stories and seeing them in theaters for years, we kind of know that's the gold standard. So we, we kind of stand around in the exposition part of the story, shuffling our feet a bit, like, okay, that's nice. Uh, you've described a small rural village. Now what's going to happen? And so really, I think that's the hardest thing to learn. And when we find somebody who knows how to escalate, we are so grateful. And so I, I think that Tolstoy could do that. And I think he understood, as all these writers did, that uh, at the end of the day, the short story is not a, it's not a documentary. It's it's a, a strange little machine that is really uh, an escalation machine. And if it doesn't escalate, it's not a story. So what's interesting is to watch the ways that he knew how to escalate. And at that point, you edge over into mystery because I really don't quite know how these great writers do that so so effortlessly. But but he was he was the king of escalation. At this point, I just want to take a moment to recap on some of the things that we've learned make a great short story. So, something must happen to our protagonists that forever changes them. Everything in the story must have some sort of bearing on the overarching story. Um, However, it doesn't matter so much if it's packed with too much detail, as long as that detail speaks to the the heart of the story, the purpose of the story. Um, It's not a story if there's not escalation. Also, in some of the um, other stories we've not talked about yet, um, you talk about uh, causality, uh, repetition, and... All of these things seem, yeah, really great. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to write a short story. These are all lessons that I've learned. But before I do write my story, I'm just going to read one more story. And unfortunately, that story was The Nose by Gogol. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. The, the nose is in there to kind of say, you know, that list that you, even as you were reciting that list, I was getting so nervous, like, oh my God, I'll never write again. It's too many rules. I think we, we have to take all of this stuff in the same spirit that we might, um, you know, if someone said, name your perfect mate. And you say, okay, great looking, thoughtful, attentive, rich, uh, you know, whatever. You, you, you make the list knowing that that's all true unless somebody poor and ugly comes along who absolutely charms you. Likewise with the story, there's kind of a, a de facto set of, of laws that the form works by, but we're also really charmed if something comes along and thumbs its nose at those rules, which is kind of what the nose does. Not entirely. It's sort of like, um, it's almost like, uh, you know, the, uh, the Monty Python sketch where the, where the philosophers are playing football. You know, it is working within the basic rules. It seems to be the narrator wants to be a good storyteller, but he's constantly fumbling it and the, uh, the premise is impossible and so on. So it's, it's almost like kind of a little dose of, of uh, humility in the middle of the book to remind us that stories cannot be written by rules. There's no way you, you can know them. You can attempt to honor them, but you really have to kind of throw them out the window when you, when you actually start. This is a story that, I mean, it absolutely shouldn't work. It seems as you're reading it, <laughs> your heart is in your mouth. It's like a tightrope walk. It just seems like one ridiculous scenario on top of another with absolutely, you know, stream after stream of, of, of absolute impossibilities happening. But he pulls it off. I mean, how? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, well, that's the question. And, you know, I, that essay was fun to write because I don't think with Google, you can never really get to the bottom of how he does it. It's like it's like seeing a great stand-up comedy. You, you can afterward you can say, oh, what he did was such and such, but really, that isn't quite it. You know, um, one, one thing about Google that I really love, and as somebody who you know came to writing myself from kind of a working-class background, didn't know any artists, have been kind of fumbling my way toward the light ever since. Gogol had a similar trajectory. He was from the Ukraine, came to St. Petersburg, and I think kind of realized that he didn't have the kind of high order skills that, say, Pushkin did. But he had a very great instinct, which is that he did know something that the city writers didn't know, which was the Ukraine. And beyond that, later, he, he knew something about being a kind of banal, frustrated person who misunderstood situations, in part because I think that was him. You know, he almost got fired from his first, or he did get fired from his first teaching job because he was sort of falling asleep during it or something like that. It, he, he wasn't, um, he was a strange person. And somehow his genius was, for a brief time actually, probably about eight or nine years, during which he wrote some of the greatest works of art in history, he was able to let the bumbler in himself onto the page while also refining that bumbling with a world-class artist's ear. So in this case, the narrator is kind of a goof up. He's, he's not really, the narrator is not a good writer. So Gogol behind the scenes is, you know, got his hand up inside this puppet who's a bad writer. So it's really complicated. And as you say, it, it's very hard to explain how he pulled it off. But I tried. <laughs> <laughs> Just one more story briefly. And that's the story, um, the Chekhov story, Gooseberries, which I wanted to talk about because it, it seems to have a, a particularly special place in your heart. Tell us why. Well, when I, I, I came from Amarillo, Texas, uh, I had gotten into the Syracuse program. It was my first trip east, and I, I kind of my first, you know, blunder into uh, educated uh, you know, society. And so pretty soon after I got to Syracuse, our, our teacher, Tobias Wolf, the great short story writer, uh, was going to give a reading. So we all went to see him. And I, my memory is he was sick, and so he didn't really feel like reading his own work. But he read us what's called the Little Trilogy by Chekhov. It's... Uh, uh, includes the story of gooseberries. And so it was a 
you know, very romantic eating. We, my wife and I had just become engaged and um, I could see this whole life ahead of myself as an artist. And Toby read these stories and I, I had never really liked Chekhov before. I, I kind of found him a little bit boring. I was, I was kind of into more pyrotechnics and kind of irreverence. But when Toby read these stories, they were so funny. It was like, um, it was just like Chekhov was there. I, I don't know how else to say it. He, he, I didn't know Chekhov was funny but he really is in that trilogy. And so something in me clicked on where I think maybe before that I felt like I liked writing, but I didn't really feel like I was in the lineage exactly, you know? Um, and I also felt like I didn't know if the story was going to be sufficient to my grand ambitions, you know? And then after hearing those stories, I'm like, yeah, I, anybody would kill to write one story like that one. And uh, so then I just sort of said, okay, now it's time to figure out how to do it. But it was just a, a communal night and um, a night when I think I, I finally understood what literature was about, which was to entertain. It was very entertaining. We were rolling in the eyes and there was where you just, your heart just stopped with, with sadness. And um, and the whole thing, it, it felt like nothing was wasted. And it's a three-story work of art. And the last line just lacerates you. It's so, it, and it brings the whole thing, you know, probably 60 pages of stories together as a coherent unit. You know, it's just unbelievable. In this story, Gooseberries, there's a, a marvellous sequence where one of the characters, Ivan, goes swimming in a river and it's raining. And the observant listeners can't help but notice that the book we're talking about here is called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. At the back of the book, in one of the appendices, you talk about... Obviously, these are works in translation, and there are many different translations of these stories. So, I guess, first of all, what are we losing by reading these stories in English? And then also, perhaps, which of the many translations of these works are your favourites? Yeah, I think we're losing a lot, and I and I don't read Russian, so I'm sort of ignorant of exactly how much, but we did have, at one time I had, uh, early in my career, I had one of my colleagues come in from the Russian department and ask her this question that you just asked me. And she showed us a section from Gogol's story, The Overcoat, and she showed us different translations. And then she tore each one of them apart very nicely, you know, this, and uh, you could see that we were just getting a pale reflection of, of the originals, especially with Gogol. Uh, and she explained that with some writers like Chekhov and Tolstoy, and I think maybe Turgenev, because the, the writing is, is more, the sentences are simpler and more factual, and they work by accretion, uh, we don't lose quite as much. But with Gogol or uh, Isaac Babel, um, uh, Bulbakov, I think you're, you're losing a lot. And my thought was, well, okay, well, let's just mourn that loss, but remember that they're pretty darn good in English, too. And for my purposes, which is to try to get my students to think about story form, they're perfect. Uh, even in English, they're, they're perfect. You know, so I, I'm sure that I'll hear from a lot of Russian Russian readers who say this is this is a bad translation or good translation. These are just the ones that I have been using since 1996, and so I'm kind of used to them, and I uh, they, they kind of work for my purpose. So I've been talking to George Saunders. We've been talking about his latest book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, in which four dead Russians give us a masterclass in writing and life, which is out now in the UK from Bloomsbury. George, thank you so much for taking the time to share them with us. Neil, thank you. I really appreciate all the work you did to, to get ready. Obviously, it was fantastic. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, 
rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.